0: Turn again in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, especially verse 8, though, in the broader context. And being found and fashioned as a man, he that is Christ Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Question and answer, 43 of an Orthodox catechism, which recall is the Baptist, 17th century Baptist revision of Heidelberg Catechism. That question and answer reads as, Follows why is there added that is in the creed he descended into hell that in my greatest pains and most grievous temptations I may support myself with this comfort that my Lord Jesus Christ has delivered me by the unspeakable distresses, torments and terrors of his soul into which he was plunged both before and then especially when he hung on the cross from the straits and torments of hell. Christ, the catechism says, Christ has delivered me from the straits and torments of hell. And then interestingly, and not without significance, the Orthodox Catechism adds this note following the proof texts, Isaiah 53 and verse 10, Matthew 27 and verse 46. This note, not that he, that is Christ, went into the place of the damned, but that he went absolutely into the place of the dead. I suppose that note raises more questions than it does answers. And it is precisely something of uh, my intention to try to answer what it means for Christ to descend into hell. What it means to say that yes, he delivered us from the straits and torments of hell by the own, uh, by way of the cross, uh, but also that he went into the place of the dead. What does it mean to confess that point? What does it mean to believe that concerning Christ's descending into hell? And immediately in trying to understand The creed, in trying to understand even the catechism, uh, we are confronted with the reality that this particular clause of the creed is uh, perhaps the most maligned, perhaps the most misunderstood, and so uh, most rejected, or at least questioned, uh, clause of the creed. There are, in fact, several different uh, views of what the creed means and of what the scripture teaches regarding Christ's descent into hell. And even among uh, what we would call Bible-believing Christians, churches, even among confessional Protestant churches, Reformed churches, there are differing views. And in light of such difference, in light of such confusion, it would be easy to say, well, let's just get rid of this clause uh, and confess the rest of the creed. Or better, we could say, let's, as some have done, let's just confess the Nicene Creed, which says everything else the Apostles' Creed does, but doesn't include this particular statement. That would be the easy way out. And as Reformed Baptists, we don't like taking the easy way out. I say that somewhat in jest, but the reality is there is a, an important biblical strand of teaching, an important biblical thread of truth that is expressed by and summarized by the creed when it says that Christ Jesus Descended into hell. There is something significant about acknowledging, about believing, and then seeking to understand that Christ not only suffered under Pontius Pilate, not only that he was crucified, but also that he died, that he was buried. And that yes, he descended to hell. One way to seek to understand that is to approach the scriptures and ask what, does, what do they teach regarding hell? What does it mean for Christ to descend to hell? And certainly we will do so, not only a little bit this morning, but also next week, Lord willing, as we... Uh, continue to seek to understand what the creed summarizes concerning biblical teaching at this point but there is i think another way to approach the question and answer of the catechism and approach this particular clause of the creed rather than beginning this morning our investigation of this part of the creed and the catechism rather than beginning by delving into the various views and examining each one of them, their relative uh, merits and demerits, I think it's best to begin to understand this clause by placing it in its own native context, that is, understanding it in its natural context, by placing it within the context, that is, of the totality of Christ's work as the only mediator between God and men by seeking to understand something of the Bible's basic teaching on Christ's humiliation, that is, and that this particular creed expresses to us, or this particular Uh, article in the creed, statement in the creed, expresses the depth of Christ's humiliation. What does the Scripture mean? What does the Apostle mean when he says that Christ humbled Himself becoming obedient unto death Yea, the death of the cross. What does it mean to speak of death? What does death entail? And given the uniqueness of Christ's death and the insignificance of Christ's death, what does that indicate about the depths to which Christ descended for us and for our salvation. We could put this another way. We need to understand the clause of the Creed and its summary by the Catechism by seeking to place this clause and what it means. Within the biblical and theological parameters of Christ's person and work. This dissent clause cannot be understood on its own terms, that is, all by itself in a kind of isolation from the biblical basics of Christ. Christ and his state of humiliation summarized by Paul, taught by Paul, here in Philippians chapter 2. Now next week, we'll look more specifically at the dissent clause itself, though we'll make mention of it obviously today and seek to understand something of it today. But what we want to do first of all is to understand the parameters, understand the context in which this particular clause and its teaching is to be understood. And we can't obviously say everything at this point, but we need to understand the basics. We need to understand the basic parameters. On this point... That the descent clause speaks to the depth, the extent of Christ's humbling himself unto death, even the death of the cross. And there are three things, three we might call them parameters regarding or that are necessary for us to understand the descent clause. The first is the person of Christ and the fact that he is the mediator. Jesus Christ who Paul says existing in the form of God that is Notice even that Paul says that this is presently true. He speaks in such a way as to indicate that it always has been the case. That it continues to be the case. Christ just exists in the form of God. That is form meaning nature. He has the nature of of God or Jesus is God This Christ Jesus who is God counted not the thing on an equality or counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped that is Jesus didn't have to think of his deity as something that he had to hold on to he he knew and understood that he was and is, and always will be, God. True God. The Son of God. He didn't have to grasp after it. It was true of Him, personally, eternally, in view of who He was. But this one, nevertheless... Emptied himself. Now, how did he do that? What does it mean to empty himself? Well, Paul explains immediately. This emptying is not a divesting of himself of anything pertaining to his deity, it's not subtraction, it's not a loss. It's also not, we might say, addition. The better term is assumption. He emptied himself, that is, by taking the form of a servant, taking to himself, uniting to himself without change. Without change to who he was as the eternal Son of God, he took to himself the form of a servant. What is the form of a servant? Well, again, it's the nature of a servant. Form meaning nature. And Paul here is borrowing and leaning upon significantly in the background the servant songs of Isaiah. And what they teach us regarding the person of Jesus Christ. But he specifies even in this context. That this emptying, which is the taking the form of a servant, is this eternal Son of God, this true God of true God, very God of very God, light of light, consists in being made in the likeness of men. Paul traces out each clause. He takes one, cent, one clause, then builds, up, builds upon it and explains it, until he arrives at essentially what it means for this Christ Jesus, who is God, what it means for him to have emptied himself. It's to take the form of a servant. It's to be made in the likeness of men. That is, this one who is God became incarnate. He took to himself and united to his person a true complete human nature, the very likeness of men. And this person, in that incarnate, or as the incarnate one, did something. That is, he humbled himself. Being found in fashion as a man, that is, being true man, a real man, this one, Jesus Christ, this one person, humbled himself. And this draws attention to, to the fact that this humiliation of Christ is the humiliation of one who is truly God and truly man, the two natures united in the one person. All of Christ's acts, then, including whatever we say about this descent into hell are the acts of this one person. This one mediator. Who as God is One who, we might even dare to say, by his nature, cannot die. But this one who is God, as a man, is capable of death and all that death entails. Whatever death is, whatever the death of the cross is, whatever obedience is, these things can be attributed to Jesus Christ as part and parcel of His humiliation precisely because He is the one who became man. And we need to be careful here. We don't want to say that Jesus Christ or that Only the humanity of Jesus obeyed. Only the humanity of Jesus died. Only the humanity of Jesus descended into hell. We don't speak about the natures of Christ acting in the abstract. What we do is we talk about the person of Jesus fulfilling all of his calling And yet, doing so according to that nature which is capable of a certain work. So, for example, we say, we must say, Jesus Christ died. But we don't say, God died, or the deity of Jesus died. We don't even say, the humanity of Jesus died. We say, Jesus Christ died according to that nature which is capable of death. Jesus Christ died as a man. Jesus Christ humbled himself. The prerequisite, even for this humbling, is the incarnation. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, the death of the cross. The depth of Christ's humiliation is the depth of Christ's humiliation in the form of a servant, in the likeness of men. Now, if all of that is confusing, what we really want to emphasize here is that when we speak of the person of the mediator and the acts of the mediator, particularly his acts of death and taking death and experiencing death, he is doing so as a man for men. This one who humbled himself is the one who humbled himself to the point... To experience everything that death is and would have been, and indeed is, for men. Again, we need to speak very carefully about Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ, and then the acts of Jesus Christ. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. And he did so in the likeness of human flesh he did so in the form of a servant he did so to serve us Jesus Christ is the one who descends to hell Jesus Christ, who's never capable, according to his deity, never capable of being severed from his Father. He exists in the form of God, and as existing in the form of God, he always exists or dwells in the bosom of his Father. And yet, as a man, because he is man, he truly dies truly goes to the depths of death for us the point here is simply that whatever we say we have to say it carefully because of who the mediator is because of the one we are talking about Jesus Christ, true God, true man, one person. The person then of the mediator is part and parcel of the parameters of understanding the descent of Christ. The second thing that we ought to notice And this again in view of what Paul here says in Philippians chapter 2 is we might simply think of it as the point of his humiliation. When we think about the descent clause we must think about the person to whom this act of mediation is ascribed. But we must also think about the point of his humiliation itself. Again, what does it mean and why is it important for the apostle to say that Jesus Christ being found in fashion as a man Humbled himself, and that this humbling of himself consists of being obedient unto death, yea, this kind of death, the death of the cross. What does it mean even to consider this humiliation? As it is juxtaposed with Christ's exaltation in verse 9. Well, as we think about the person of the mediator, which we've already briefly done, and as we think about how this person fulfills or executes his calling to be the mediator. How does he fulfill his mission? We say, in view of this very text, verses 8 and 9 especially, that Jesus did so in two states. In both states, he is the incarnate one. So the incarnation is the prerequisite for both his humiliation and his exaltation. But these are his two states, humiliation and exaltation. He humbled himself, wherefore God highly exalted him. It's the one and the same person, the one and the same incarnate son, the one Jesus Christ who is and exists in the form of God and yet took to himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. He, on the one hand, humbles himself, and he, on the other hand, is highly exalted. God highly exalts him. There are two states in which the incarnate Christ fulfills his calling as the mediator between God and men. And this first state is the state of humiliation. And it consists in, as it is expressed clearly and simply by Paul, in his obedience, that is, his life, which culminates in his death. And the kind of death that is part and parcel of his humiliation is an accursed death. An ignoble death. The death of the cross. And when Paul mentions this particular kind of death. And ascribes it as part and parcel. Or at least the the culmination of our Lord's obedience. He has in view not merely the act of crucifixion. Or the events of the crucifixion at Calvary. And his physical expiration, that is his breathing the last and giving up the ghost upon the cross. But he has in view everything that death entails or includes as the curse against man's sin. This is the depth of Christ's humiliation. That he undergoes as a man everything that death entails for you and for me. Christ humbled himself to that extent, to that depth. And I will argue that that's precisely what the creed means and the catechism intends when it speaks of Christ descending into hell. It is the full depth of death as a man, soul and body for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak then of the point This is the point to which our Lord's humiliation drives. It's the point to which the humbled one descends, if you will. It is not the incarnation itself, but it is the incarnate one going all the way to death. And experiencing death both as the penalty for sin and death and all that it means relative to the power of sin as it affects those for whom Christ came and those for whom Christ died. To bring many sons to glory, the Lord Jesus Christ became like unto us. And in order to free those who were under the power of death, Jesus himself died and underwent not only the penalty of sin, but underwent what we might call the power of sin or death. Endured the power of death. And it is precisely in his resurrection, which is the beginning of his exaltation, that we see that Jesus Christ, in descending into hell, that Jesus Christ, in descending to this point, truly. Defeated death in all that death entails. The point to which Christ descends is the point of a humiliation which takes him to experience even the disgrace of death that is ours. By virtue of sin. The mediator, as a man, goes to this point for men. And that's the third parameter. When we speak of the descent clause, we must think of the person to whom this work is attributed. When we think about the dissent clause, we must secondly think of it as the lowest point of Christ's humiliation. A humiliation which consists in bearing and taking upon himself the fullness of the curse against sin. And thirdly and finally then, in relation to that, when we think about the dissent clause, we must think Specifically, in terms of the corruption of sin upon us and the power or the bondage of death that that entails, Hebrews chapter 2 ascribes the power of death in a certain measure to the evil one, to Satan. And this precisely because he is the one who tempted man to death in the garden. But it attributes then to us, who sinned in Adam, the reality of death and a living, as it were, under the power of death. And when we speak of the descent clause and Christ as the one descending to this particular, the lowest point of his humiliation, what we're saying is essentially that Christ became man in order to die man's death. The depth to which Christ humbled himself is an obedience unto death, the death of the cross. That is the taking of not only the punishment of sin, of our sin, but taking even and overcoming even the corruption of sin and the power of death remember that what was announced to Adam in the garden was that in the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would most certainly, most assuredly die. Death was the sentence. And as he sinned, he indeed Died. He indeed came under a penalty, a condemnation, as Paul explains in Romans 5 and verses 12 and following. But even in that same context, it is clear that not only is there penalty and condemnation, but there is very real death. Physical death, the rending of body and soul, this reality entered into the world, Paul says, and is indeed the punishment for sin. But death as the penalty for sin also yields a certain power over those who go to the grave. It has with it a certain disgrace that even Adam and Eve knew. What are they ashamed of? Their nakedness before God. And certainly that means that they're ashamed before God because they've been stripped bare and shown for what they've done. And what they are. But the fact that their shame is attached in some measure to their own bodily existence is not an acknowledgement of the evil of the body, not at all. But the fact that sin even affects the body and that those bodies are now destined to be separated from the soul. And lie in the grave under the power and corruption of death. Death is unnatural. It's not the condition for which God made us. It's not the condition in which God made us. And death as the penalty for sin brings with it disgrace. This is in some measure what even the Apostle Peter is getting at in Acts chapter 2. There he speaks about, in citing and explaining Psalm 16, he talks about the pangs of death that bound Jesus. These pangs that bound him are pangs from which he is loosed. Death not being able to hold him. There is a power and a bondage described or attributed to death. And later in that same sermon, Peter speaks of this power, of this binding and bondage. As a being left unto corruption. Or simply of as Hades. Acts 2 and verse 31. This is a kind of state. A state in which one is under the power of. Enduring the disgrace of death as the curse and penalty for sin. And when Paul says that Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, this kind of death, the death of the cross, he means not only. That Jesus delivers us from the penalty of sin by way of His death on the cross. But He delivers us from the power and disgrace of sin even as He Himself endures that power and undergoes that disgrace. for 3 days whatever it means to say that Christ humbled himself to death it is to say that he humbled himself to this depth that he undertook as a man for men this disgrace That what was owed to man given his corruption and sin was the disgrace even of his body in the grave. Lying under the power of death in the grave. Enduring the pangs of death in the grave. Jesus not only endured... But in his resurrection, conquered. Jesus remained in the state of the dead and under the power of death for three days as the lowest point of his humiliation. Why? For us. For our salvation. That we, who were disobedient and deserved death, might be partakers of His obedience unto death that we who were accursed and deserved to lie under the disgrace and power of death forever might be delivered from death's power and delivered even from the disgrace of death. For us and for our salvation, and even as we think of it in terms of the terms in which Paul puts it here in this context, it is to the end of our exemplifying Christ in our lives. How can we, who have tasted of the fruit and benefit of Christ's death. Even the death of the cross. How can we be anything other than humble? How in the world could we Be proud and boastful. How could we dare to look each of us to our own things and neglect the things of others if we have received of Christ this deliverance from even the power and disgrace of death? And knowing this as well serves the glory of God. Understanding the depths of Christ's humiliation is important because it is for us and for our salvation. It exemplifies as well the humility that is necessary for us as those who are in Christ and confess Him, but also in view of what Paul says in, view of, in light of the exaltation of Christ and the exaltation of His name to all the created order. This is also to the glory of God the Father. To know Christ as the one who humbled himself unto death. And tasted even the disgrace of death for us. Ought to lead us to glorify. Yes, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To believe this in our hearts and to rest upon him and to do so to the glory to the praise of God the Father. Jesus work for us grounds us in salvation guides us as those who are saved and causes us even To glorify God. For who among us, which one of us would have purposed to save a rebellious people, a sinful people, a death deserving people, by sending their own son to endure all of that death? Send Him as a man for man to take man's curse and all that that curse entailed. Surely, when we confess these things about Christ, surely we should be prompted to glorify the Father, to praise Him. Indeed, to praise God. Who in his wisdom and goodness and power gave his son to endure our death. To endure the penalty which is death. To lie as it were under the power of this death. Indeed, to undergo hell itself for us. Heaven is ours in virtue of Christ. May God be glorified for this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are weak, we are frail, we are slow to understand. Lord, we pray that we would be not only careful to understand, but that we would understand these things not to the end that we would believe, but because we believe. Lord, our faith seeks understanding. Our faith in just this Christ, in this mediator, who humbled himself to this point, Lord, we would understand it, not because we want to have our minds simply filled with knowledge, but because we want to praise you aright. We desire to glorify you aright. And so we pray that you would increase our faith in this Christ. Increase our understanding in this Christ. And increase our desire to praise you for this. For this Jesus Christ, our Savior, who descended into hell. We pray in his name. Amen.